Welcome to season three of the Gamers Change Lives podcast, Esports 101, Building a Business. Over the past year, we've talked with many esports professionals around the world. Our audience knows how to play games, and now they are eager to level up their skills in the business arena. This season aims to equip every esports entrepreneur with practical and useful knowledge to achieve success. Think of it as a mini course, Esports 101. And now your host, Tom Leonard. I'm Tom Leonard. I'm the host of the Gamers Change Lives podcast, where we talk about how esports can create jobs all over the world. Play games, create jobs, change lives. See, in season one, we talked about jobs. In season two, we talked about sponsorship and investment. We called it follow the money. And now in season three, we're talking about how to actually build a business. We call it Esports 101. Today, I'm really, really happy to have Amir Sadlat, who is the head of global startup operations at AWS and a LinkedIn superstar, which we're going to talk about. Welcome, Amir. Thank you so much, Tom. I, I really enjoy your content and uh, you're, you're a real star yourself. And I'm just, I'm so touched that I have the opportunity to talk to you today. We appreciate that. We're going to, we're going to cut that, that little video part out and, and use it ad nauseum. So you're, you're in Connecticut, right? Which is on the, for people around the world, that's on the East coast of the U.S. I'm in California. I'm on the West coast, but you're in Connecticut, right? That's exactly right, Tom. It's right in New England. It's, uh, it's where I grew up when my family actually came from Iran slightly over, you know, 50 years ago, they settled in the Northeast and they've been in Connecticut for over 40 years. So our family's actually been in Connecticut longer than they've been in Iran. Wow. I, that, yeah. There's always, there's so many great uh, immigration stories to yeah. talk about. And, and I, was, I was born here actually in Hartford Hospital, but we love it. It's really home to us and it's so good to be back home. Yeah. Great. Great. Now we usually talk about uh, esports instead of game development, but there are just so many good stories that I think that you can bring to our audience. But the first thing I wanted to talk about is the legend of Zelda, because when you look at your content, you are such a huge fan of that out there. And a couple weeks, a couple episodes ago, we talked to Grant Rousseau with team Falcons. And he, he said something that stuck with me. He said, you can buy a follower. You can't buy a fan. So what is it about that particular game that is really struck, stuck with you? Why are you a big fan of that one? Of the, oh, I was going to say of the 2300 games that you played, it's like, well, I really love it. And, and as you can see, Tom, I wore my, uh, my, my Hyrule crest hoodie today. Yeah. Which is so funny. Well, you've done your homework. It's, it's a really special game for me. I think that there's, um, you know, nostalgia is a, is I think a powerful word. Sometimes people think that nostalgia is like a cheat word, like, oh, you're nostalgic. So it doesn't have substance. When nostalgia blends with substance and history, you can often get something that's very special. Legend of Zelda was one of the very first games I fell in love with. I was, you know, four or five years old when I played it. And it's crazy to think that the series is almost as old as I am. And that, you know, the, the story and the simpleness of it that I started with really enchanted me with, with what role playing games could be. And it was the first game to really show me that scope of a overworld, dungeons, items, like a larger story. And I think I love it so much because Nintendo's consistency of execution, it's the highest average rated game series in history. And it's just like they never rest. It's constantly evolving, changing, evolving, changing. And it's amazing. They're still doing it in 2023. So it's just, I think, the perfect blend of gameplay. It has just about everything for every person. And while Mario may always be the face of Nintendo, and I love that series too, I think Zelda, I think many will would agree with this statement, has that greater depth coupled with that, and it's just the best. 
So it's interesting to hear what 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 people are fans of because it's 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 fairly personal. But but there's always a reason behind it. It's like that didn't just happen by accident. One of the things I wanted to talk about was um, business development because I'm going to let people just go to the to LinkedIn and look at your background. I mean, they could get all the details so that we could spend time going over here. But a couple of things I wanted to point out to the audience: you have experience in business development and. Not everyone's going to understand what that is or be familiar with what business development is. Could you describe what BD is and how it fits within the role of an organization? Absolutely. The way that I often like to break it down for people, at least in my head, is if you say to people, what is a salesperson? I think a lot of people can visualize that. Okay, you have a person who really cares about customers. They learn about their needs. And there's typically something, whether it's a product or service, that they are trying to directly sell to that person usually in some type of structure of commission for how much they sell. Then I say to people, do you understand what somebody is in strategy and planning? Again, typically faces light up and people understand. That's someone who is clearly not usually front-facing, and they're thinking about the direction of the organization, what their business objectives are, and how the company can think about positioning itself to meet those objectives. I often think of BD almost as a hybrid between a salesperson and a strategy person. You're not on a quota. You're not directly trying to sell anybody anything, but you're also not a strategy person who entirely has just internal customers within your organization. You are trying to establish the company's business and strategic objectives with other partners so that those objectives can be achieved down the road. Now, BDS with many roles is a little bit squishy. In some orgs, BD does sell things to other teams and close deals, even if they're not in commission. And in some orgs, it's truly more strategic, but that's how I would think about it. People-centered conversations that in some way drive the goals of that business over time. One of the things I remember working over here at Warner Brothers was we would occasionally come across, I was in the marketing area there, we'd occasionally come up with the, come across the BD people. It was like, wow, how come they get to work on all the fun things? It's just like, yeah, well, we were working on fun things too, but they were working on different kinds of fun things. But what I'm hearing you say is also maybe even a, a, a really small operation still needs that, maybe not a separate BD person, but they need that kind of uh, activity going on there. That I, makes sense. It absolutely does. And I think that you know having it as a carved out function certainly probably becomes more of a luxury once a company achieves some critical size. I feel like before that, oftentimes, maybe even with a startup mindset, the executives of the company are almost doing that themselves by going to kind of the Rolodex of people that they know. But call it BD, call it partnerships, call it whatever you want to call it, alliances within various companies, absolutely. I would say a company that even has 10 people should probably be thinking to themselves, even if they don't have a dedicated BD alliances person, who is the person in my organization who is having those conversations with other orgs to establish ourselves and build up those key strategic relationships? I am always a big fan. I am always here talking about think long-term because so many so many people we talk to, they're for all kinds of reasons, and we're all guilty of it at times. It's just like, you know, they're, uh, they're, they think, they're thinking shorter term. And when, you know, if you're going to go to that big tournament next year in Bali, it's like, you know, you need to be thinking about it now instead of, later. So, um, no, I'm always uh, a fan of that. I want to talk a little bit about AWS because um, it's another term that a lot of people around the world may not be familiar with. So, can you describe what AWS in general does and how it fits into the Amazon universe? 
Absolutely. So I think that for people to understand AWS, it's helpful to understand how these cloud computing businesses emerged. So prior to AWS, the way that businesses worked in terms of their IT infrastructure was if you were a company, everything was so-called on-premises. So you're a company, you want to have various hardware and software services for yourself you would have a physical room at your company, which would have a large number of servers and stuff like that. You would have a ton of computers within your office. And those pieces of hardware combined with software would service your company's IT needs. Companies like Dell EMC and others really did well in this selling these big boxes of stuff. If you get even further back, it was probably companies like IBM and things like that. What happened as time went on is several services emerged in combination with one another. First of all, you had companies like VMware, which developed virtualization, which meant that now you could make kind of artificial computers by dividing the capacity of hardware. So on one server, that could almost be 10 or 15 computers that were split by software. So now you're moving a step away from everything being hardware right in front of you just for you. The next step down that road is, well, rather than having to have everything physically here and I need to buy my own hardware and my own infrastructure, what if somebody else bought all that infrastructure for me and instead I paid them a a monthly fee for them to take care of everything for me? And so the easiest way I explain it to people, well, what's the cloud? The cloud is you have a whole bunch of now instead of your servers in your building, someone has much larger rooms in various locations, and they have the surfers. And now those are connected with the internet and incredibly fast optimized speeds and all the things that you need to do, they can do for you for a fee. And so originally, this was in a few core businesses for AWS, like compute and other things like that. But it's now grown into a huge suite of services that span everything from hosting people's data to doing AI and machine learning, to doing various database functions for them. There are tens of services, hundreds of services that exist in AWS. And I think a lot of your listeners, Tom, would be surprised what percentage of the services that they have and companies that they frequent and shop from host their services or run their computing needs through AWS. Yeah, I'm sure that every time that I stream a Netflix show, it's probably going through through AWS or or someone similar out there. So, um, what is global startups at AWS? Because that's what you had up there. It looked like you came from the game side of things, Amazon Games, and then moved into into this role. Can you tell us what are you doing on global startups? Because that sounds really good, interesting for our audience. Of course, Tom. And for a quick minute again of context, you're spot on that I started at Amazon in July 2019. Originally, I was in our AWS um business in another in a another role. I was the COO for our inside sales and demand generation business. Then I finally achieved my lifelong dream of working in games, which I did for almost three years. Then a very interesting opportunity came up back in AWS within the startup division. And so the way to think about it is AWS, like any business, segments its customers in some type of intelligent way. This is because not all customers have homogenous needs and you need to help and support them best in different ways. So we may, for example, have very large enterprise customers who have very big needs, need very dedicated one-on-one support, have large amounts of billing, have large IT infrastructure. On the other end, you have customers who are startup customers where they might be very small, but 
they might be on a very fast trajectory of growth in terms of what their needs might be down the road. And we try to help and support those customers along that entire journey. And eventually, you know, they may begin in startup, but they may graduate to another segment or division within AWS. And so I would think of the startup business as we are supporting customers that are, we hope, going to be the big customers another day, but there's many, many more of them, and they're typically much smaller. And so from a business and strategy standpoint, as you can imagine, an operation standpoint, this leads to a lot of interesting and fun challenges to solve for them because you literally might have tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of customers. You have to figure out and parse how to serve each of those customers in the best way. And so for someone like me, who's like a data geek and stuff like that, you really have to find intelligent ways, given sometimes imperfect information of how to understand each of those customers at a much broader scale than an enterprise business where you might only be dealing with a few hundred very, very large customers. I think that's really an interesting way to divide things up because the, yeah, it would be completely different needs for someone just, just starting out, you know, that, that, that has potential without uh, uh, asking you all kinds of internal secrets there. What, what kinds of things signal to you, Hey, this is, this is some, this is an organization that is going somewhere and not asking for specific examples, but just what do you look for to be signals for someone that's going to go somewhere? Well, I'll say some stuff. I'll try to say this in a generalized way of stuff that I know, Tom, other people in a business like ours would be looking at. So for example, a lot of people know a very well-known research that's like the gold standard within the startup world is a resource called PitchBook. PitchBook has a lot of information, but one of the things it has, as you know, is information on companies' financing rounds. So for example, if a company has had seed funding, if they've had a Series A, if they've had a Series B, those are the types of things that might give you a lot of confidence that the company is going somewhere. Another one is you can look at, for example, who are the people who are running that company? Where did they come from? Who are their advisors? So we think about this and obviously go into much, much more depth than that, that I, of course, unfortunately can't share. But it's it's kind of like, I think the real, again, fun and challenge is there's some of these signals that are very obvious that everyone's looking at. But the question is, what kind of work can you do with big data and analytics and other things to find other indicators that are going to be interesting and nuanced and may even not be things that people might expect are indicative of which companies are on the rise? And that's part of the solving the puzzle. Sounds very much like a, a VC role as far as you know, you're looking for the same things that VC is looking for. And so that, that, that's really smart to go through and see who, who someone is vetted at some at some level out there. Do you work with companies all over the world then? I mean, it says global, but, but are you really, are you in sub-Saharan Africa? Are you in Southeast Asia? Are you in um, South America? We absolutely are. It's, it's a truly global business and, uh, and, and it's only getting bigger all the time. And I, to give you one example, you know, I feel like the, again, making comments that I feel comfortable I can make based upon public information. You know, the company has made the biggest new commitments to areas of the world that like, you know, have the highest promise that maybe in cases of other organizations might not be served as much. So like our, our focus on APJ, for example, even outside the more mature companies is very, very significant. So we try to cover as many people as we can everywhere, truly everywhere. Do you have anything to do with servers? And the reason I bring that up, whenever we're talking to anyone in um, sub-Saharan Africa, that, and we're talking about esports, we're talking about, you know, when are, when are there going to be more servers brought to Africa? In, do you have any visit, 
and again, I'm not asking for any other internal information, but in, in general, do you see that that there's going to be more servers in places that uh, people could use them? Unfortunately, Tom, I don't have visibility into that. I have I have some visibility into tech and our tech stacks and our resource deployment, but I would say those are enough steps removed from me that I I it's not even that I I'm withholding anything. I just I don't have enough visibility to that. I'm no, no, I just I just wanted to find out if it was your email address I was going to give it out. So. Uh, so it's like, uh, but, but I guess part of the things that we're always trying to figure out here is that, um, you know, who to aim people in the right direction sort of thing on, on questions like that, because a lot of times if you don't ask, you know, you really don't get. So yeah. how much does, um, AWS work with Amazon games? Oh, a lot. So, so actually in AWS, we have a dedicated business that's called AWS game tech, which works with all the biggest companies in the world. And so that, that, that. That does, they do a lot of different things. And I, I don't want to say anything that minimizes the scope of what they do because it is very vast, but it's a lot of what you would expect it to be, which is, you know, typically, typically bigger companies, major server needs, stuff like that, multiplayer games, stuff like that. On the Amazon game side, there's actually a lot of divisions in Amazon that deal with games. We obviously have Twitch. We have Amazon. It used to be called Amazon Game Studios, but we we just now call all of it Amazon Games. We have the studio side, which makes the games. We have the prime gaming business where I worked, which had um, various in-game content and free game stuff. We have Luna, which is a streaming service. We have our Alexa division does some stuff in games. And we, of course, have our App Store business, which does games within our device business for Fire and, and various devices like that. And so I would say to your direct question of how much do the two divisions work together, they definitely work together. But, and this is, in fact, one of the things that I, I, I did quite a bit of in my Amazon games role, Amazon is such a large company that we're always working very hard at trying to find more and more cross-team collaborations. So that's the thing we're always trying to do more of. How excited are you for the Lord of the Rings game coming up? I'm very, very excited. I mean, you know, I, I obviously am a, a MMO super fan. I've played more of World of Warcraft than any other game in my life. I'm a big, big Lord of the Rings fan. And, and you know, I thought New World is a wonderful game too. And, you know, a lot of my really good friends work on that. So I think it's very exciting when you look at that and you look at the Tomb Raider game as well. It's encouraging to see that Amazon isn't just talking, you know, they're walking the walk on making some major bets on some large uh, beloved IPs. Yeah. When we were working, when I was over at Warner Brothers and we were working with WB Games and working on you know, Mortal Kombat and Arkham games and, and their Lord of the Rings. Um, yeah, I love that game. I love that uh, the WB uh, Lord of the Rings was a lot of fun. I played a lot of that. Yes, yes. So, I mean, and certainly th that's part of the fun is also working with these companies is to work with with the kind of IP that you get to work with out there. I mean, it's just, you know, that's, that, that's, it's, yeah, part of the fun, part of what you signed up for. I want to talk a little bit here about LinkedIn. And mainly what I want to talk about is community building. Because one of the things that one of the things that, uh, that you said in one of your recent posts is the impact our community has on people's lives brings me immense joy, and that's such a generous thing to say. But what I really like about there is you're saying the impact our community. You're not talking about the impact I'm making makes me happy. It's like you're, you're happier when other people are making an impact. Is the feeling that I get. So can you talk a little bit about your LinkedIn strategy and? where it came from, because the other thing that I always, always like to talk about here are the beginnings, because it's like, okay, you know, 
uh, this is what this guy was like trying, this is the hole this guy was trying to fill. And it's like, maybe I can fill something like that. So can you talk about what you're doing and also where you started, how you, why you started? Yeah, no, I, I, I'm very excited to talk about this, Tom, as you can imagine. So the story for this, which I love to tell is it was two or three weeks, something like that before the American Thanksgiving holiday, this last year in 2022. And the big layoffs, as you know, didn't really start un until December of last year. But I had already seen some layoffs coming across the board for some colleagues at various places, including in games. And a few of them had called me, you know, in tears, very sad that it was just a few weeks before the holiday, and they would have to go to their spouses, their significant others, their families, their children, and say, you know, dad or mom doesn't have a job anymore, and we don't know what to do. And after, you know, the sixth, seventh, eighth call, I sincerely like went to my partner, Jess, and I said, Jess, this is like unacceptable. Like somebody has to do something about this. But I realized a few things. And so I tried to observe. I spent a lot of time before I ever do anything. I like to look around and observe what other people are trying. And I don't mean this in a malicious way. I mean this in like a productive way because I make a lot of mistakes too. Understand why some of the things people have tried aren't working. And I saw that a lot of people were trying to get stuff off the ground. And some of them were very successful. I'm certainly, thankfully, not the only person who does things like this very successfully. But a lot of these things weren't getting off the ground. And I made a few observations. Observation one, to your point, is for a lot of these things, it became about the person rather than the service. They wanted to build like something for themselves. They were maybe even trying to commoditize it as a paid service. It was all about like some type of proprietary thing. It was like about them that they wanted to hold behind a wall. The second thing that I observed is a lot of people thought overtooled these things. And it's like, oh, they wanted to build like a perfect website and they wanted to be like calibrated and they wanted to have forums that they wanted to have like, and I, I was like, that's too much. And the third thing that I observed is that, uh, this, the types of things like that that work the best were when people brought a strong, authentic personality to it that was very persistent. And so I said to myself, and I'll explain to your listeners in a second what this is for some of them, for many of them who may not know, but I said to myself that I need to do something that basically is like crowdsourced, where everybody is involved and feels like they can step up. And that it's also theirs. So if like I started up and now they start their own thing, it's not like there's like a competition between me and them. In fact, I'm happy if they're doing more stuff. I wanted it to be basic so that everything I built up was not going to be in anything more than like Google Docs and like spreadsheets so any person could understand it and use it. And I wanted to really bring my personality and flair to the table. And so what I built, Tom, is... We have, uh, you know, over 35, near 36,000 followers in the community. Amazing, amazing. And there were only a few thousand. When I started in Thanksgiving, I think there were like 2,000, 3,000 followers. And so what we built up is a lot of stuff. But the centerpiece of it is six resources, a game jobs workbook where where people can sign up uh you know we refresh it every few months but 1500 to 3000 people sign up to be seen by recruiters cuz there's not really an easy way to actually do that in linkedin you can put open to hire but unless you're a recruiter on linkedin there's not like one place where they're all aggregated we have a mentor network of almost 350 people and 80% of them are in games where anybody can sign up for a free 30 minute mentorship conversation across 18 functions I just started, we have 50 people who signed up in less than a week for specifically a CV and LinkedIn profile review service. 
We have the largest database of games jobs in the world, which I make myself with help from some HR and recruiters who spot check my data from time to time. That has nearly 13,000 jobs. It's the largest games jobs listing in the world by a factor of almost 4x. And uh, finally, I have some materials I built myself for like CVs, reviews, career planning. And then recently, I've also had something called Star World, where I feature someone every single week who's doing something really special for the community. And so the last comment I'll make on this is, I think the reason it's been so effective is, again, all the resources are very simple. I don't have complicated stuff that has a lot of overhead. And I found that just literally like being like, here's a workbook, sign up in this Google Forms, and I'm going to put you on a list. That was all I needed to make a mentor service. And tons of people tried to do that and were like, it never got off the ground. And it's because I think it was over-engineered. And the final, final comment is around all of this, I try to bring again a lot of games content and a lot of genuine just positivity and just constantly telling people you can make it. You're not going to fail. You're going to get there. And I think people know I mean it. And so I think that all kind of puts a wrapper around it that hopefully makes it resonate with people. I think you're doing a good job. I mean, what you started out with is uh, it's pretty amazing when you think that's only what, six months ago that you started? It is six months ago. And I'm pleased to tell you, Tom, originating just from our site. So every time, just that I know of, somebody gets a job and they tell me that it started with a resource in our LinkedIn channel community. I ask them to tell me and I write it down. We've placed over 250 people in jobs wow. and over a thousand people in interviews in six months. Wow. That's, that's, that's amazing. That, that congratulations. That really is good. I wanted to ask you a little bit about your intentional community building because this doesn't happen just because that one of the things I heard you say that, I, that I'm going to write down is keep things simple. It's like you start complicating things. And you get confused and it makes it so hard to explain to others. And when really just the, the most simple thing can do the job and people are going to get a lot more out of it, but it really takes a community to make this happen. And I wanted to ask you a little bit more about, you know, intentional community building. If there are certain guidelines, certain, certain tips that you can give to people, because people in esports, people in business in general, they want to build a community for their, their team or their tournament or their streaming. So. What are some good tips on building a community that's going to last? Absolutely. So I think a few a few things come to mind. So just to quickly dovetail from the last point we made, make it simple for people to engage and to get involved and for them to for that for it to be simple to understand what they're doing. So I'll focus most of my comments as an example on that mentorship network that I talked about. Here's a Google form. It takes 3 minutes to fill out. You literally put in like your name and your LinkedIn profile. I, Amir, will take care of everything else. I look up your title, your company. I sort you by category. It is easy for you to come in. If you have too many people writing you for help, you can leave the list at any time. You're not stuck. I'm not obligating you to anything. People who are looking for mentorships, very, very simple to engage. Here's literally a Google Docs link. Look up someone's name, write them a message, and then you can find a mentor who's going to help you. But I think what pulls it together is, Finding the right rhythm of having this base beat of comp of reminding people what's going on. So like to be extreme, to make a point, if I made a post every single day and I was like, here are the career resources that we put together for mentorships, for jobs, whatever, it would get very annoying very fast. People wouldn't read it. They'd be like, who's this annoying person? 
But if I posted on it every month, that wouldn't be frequent enough. People wouldn't know what's going on. They wouldn't have updates. And so I found the sweet spot is updating people roughly twice a week because that's the rate at which we get sign up. So like, hey, everybody, here's the updates that we have to our career resources. We have 10 new mentors who signed up. We have this new resource has been updated here. And so it's a constant reminder to people that this is like a real thing. I haven't forgotten about it. You haven't forgotten about it and we should do it. The last thing I'll say is you need to find opportunities that, again, are genuine to make the people who are participating feel really big and feel really special and feel really acknowledged. So for example, I've had some people within that community who stepped up and they'll be like, hey, Amir, I'm one of your mentors in our community for production. I've decided to do like a super event where anybody can sign up and like 20, 30 people might come. When I hear about any opportunity to put a flashlight on someone else, I do it to celebrate their win. Or like I had a colleague in Latin America who was like, hey, Amir, I want to make a games jobs list similar to yours. Are you going to be upset if I do something like that? I was like upset. Absolutely not. I was like, my my dream is I have like 10 people like me who are doing stuff like this to magnify the impact. And I always keep reminding people that's the last point. I'm not commoditizing this. I will never commoditize this. I don't get sponsorships. I don't get money. I don't want anything from this. I'm genuinely doing it because I care about other people. And I feel like, Tom, it literally took me, maybe I'm wrong on this, but this was my impression. I feel like it took almost three or four months for a lot of people to really believe that there truly was no catch and I didn't have some angle I was playing because I feel like they had tried to get involved with lots of these things before and eventually they found that a shoe dropped or the person had some angle they were playing for themselves and I did it. Yes, yes. All kinds of people come to mind that we will not mention. Um, how much of it, no, uh, interesting to hear you have someone in um, outside the US that wants to duplicate your success and it's like, that would be... Uh, that would that should make you so feel so good because you're like that's it's like okay it's getting through it's like um, people are understanding that this is valuable enough that they want to duplicate it. How much of your audience out there is outside the U.S. and do you notice any difference in what they how they use the the system the the information versus let's say someone in Europe or the U.S. It's very diverse. It's hard for me to say exactly, but I would say that uh, the overall audience. For all the resources, which is great, actually, I would say is probably 60 to 70% are in games or in games peripheral division uh, functions and industries. I would say a third are not in games and still benefit a lot from the general resources. And for example, if they're a developer, they could be a developer at Intel, but it's still very useful to them. I would say similarly, actually, people are surprised when I tell them this, and I was surprised too. It's not a totally US-centric audience. I would say probably only a third of the audience is in the US. It's actually very diverse in Europe, Asia, you know, Australia, like you said, Africa, Latin America. The only real difference that I notice, which is why I mentioned this friend and colleague who was in Latin America is, I've learned that when you go to a lot of these zones, they're very, very tight-knit communities that really work together. So I found that was true in Australia. I found that was true in Latin America. I found out just in Poland, for example, there's a very tight-knit group of people in that community. And so the result of this and like, well, what do I do about it is when I find that one of those communities is there, 
often for one of the resources, I'll do a deep dive to be like, is there something I can add here? So when the Poland community, for example, spoke up, I asked them for a larger list or the English community or the German community, and I would get a list of like 15 developers that were smaller, but meant a lot to them. So immediately those go on the game's jobs list. Or for like the mentor list, I find out there's a developer again in like Germany and there's four people there who want to participate. So it's like, perfect. Let's scoop them all up. So when they, when they reach out to me, I basically try to reach back. You know, it looks like a lot of it would, would be very local. Cause if you're in Poland, you, you know, jobs in, in Orange County don't, don't mean a whole lot. Uh, Definitely not. And that's why a lot of people ask me why I added the differentiation in the game's job workbook, for example, between what companies are totally remote, what companies are hybrid, and what companies are totally local. It's not because I'm trying to punish companies for being remote or not being remote. It's because I recognize that the audience is global. And so I think it's very tangible and important information for them to understand which of these places could I even work at if I want it. That's also why for the game's job workbook, for each row for each company, I list the top five cities, including remote as one option of where their jobs are located. So people can immediately understand what's relevant to them in their local uh, market. Yes. If someone wanted to duplicate, like you said, someone in Latin America, if someone wanted to duplicate um, the the kind of program, the kind of community, the kind of uh, jobs board that you're creating there, jobs board more than that. If someone wanted to do that, let's say in the esports world, in emerging markets, hint, hint out there, it's like, what are the three things that you'd say? These are the three things you need to do to get started. I think that for the resources that we have on the channel, some of them are easier than others. So I would say that for some of the other stuff that we said, like the mentorship, the career help, the CV reviews, the uh, packet of like job materials, I don't think that's very hard. I think that you need to just be persistent and ask people how they want to sign up to be a help within that community. What I would say first and foremost, though, to people, and I always offer, again, not because it's about me, but because I know that I have a large platform with high visibility, I often tell people, if you have roles or a function or something like that, as long as it's within games, and you feel like it's underserved on my platform, come to me first and let me see if I can work with you just to elevate that voice or to bring those things just onto my platform. If I can't, I'll work with you to make it happen for you. So specifically, though, for the games jobs one that you mentioned, Tom, I think I think there's two slices to it. So one slice of it is, I think, just traditional kind of BD or market research of understanding all the players in your market and understanding what all their jobs are and what's available. Not being reliant on job search sites and stuff like that, but doing it first party yourself. The second side of it, which is harder to duplicate, but I'm sure you could because it's not rocket science, although I, I do say with some pride, it is a little bit complex is, uh, I don't know if you knew this, but the way that I actually do the jobs is I've built up a whole bunch of backend over the past not eight, nine months, which is I take every single company's job site, I scrape the data which is different for each one because the format of their sites and their nomenclature is different. I process that into a raw data file. I read that into Excel. I recategorize the roles from every company into 21 common categories I made up because otherwise, if you took every company's job category across the 500 whatever companies we have, there'd be over 700 different job categories because they all call the roles something different. I mash it all back together, and then I do a layer of cleanup. 
I still have to do quite a bit of manual cleanup on top of that, but it eliminates 95% of the work. The reason I'm explaining this is I think some people might just find it kind of fun, but it's also that I have to do that because I have over 500 companies and over you know 12,000 roles, and it's too difficult to do manually. But if you were like, I'm picking these two things at random, if you were like an African esports and you wanted to know a list of orgs, this is why I said to my colleague in Latin America to run with it. If you had only 20 or 30 or 40 orgs, you could probably just process that manually as opposed to having to do everything I just said, especially if you had some people helping you. And if you're in a market where a lot of people don't have visibility to what's going on at all, just doing that A20 of good enough might do a lot of good. And one of the things to to do, just jump in, just get started. Just get going and don't overcomplicate it. Like like we were saying, Tom, you echoed it. I'm echoing it back to you. Like, keep it simple. The only resource that I have on our LinkedIn community that is indeed very complicated is the processing that I have to do for that games jobs sheet with the big list of companies. Everything else is like very simple. I think like a high schooler could do it, frankly. I think that like the only thing that I add to it, I, I, I think is maybe like a little bit of authenticity and warmth and like pizzazz and trying to sell it a little bit. But like you said, it's all about the community. I don't take any credit for that. Like the reason the mentorship stuff works, the resume stuff works, all this other stuff works is that people leaned in and they volunteered their precious time to help other people. I'm just there to kind of tie it all together and put put a, a friendly face on it. I think one of the reasons that you you come across as so authentic is because you're you're consistent in in what you're saying you're energetic you you know and the other thing that i always find in this in the games industry in particular it's like or the esports it's like bottom line people are playing games come on i mean if you if, if there's not a fun aspect to this you should be a chartered accountant i mean it's like it's like no it's like take advantage of the fact so you say at warner brothers like we're making movies it's like hey we get to or when i was working at netflix it's like we talk about movies all week we're like hey we get paid to talk about movies all week how does it get any better than this? So, you know, we, we are playing games out there. So I think um, your personality comes through um, really, really well on there. And that's that adds to your authenticity. And that's not something that everyone's going to be would be able to duplicate because they're not you. But everyone is their own person. And there's no reason that they could not do that. One question I've got to ask before we, before we uh, run out of time is how do you create so much content on LinkedIn? Because you create a lot of posts and they're really long posts and they're well-written posts. Uh, is it all chat GPT or are you writing things? I'm kidding. Uh, I'm proud to say, I'm proud to say, cause people asking me that playfully too. And it always makes me smile. I'm proud to say that I only use chat GPT at times for editing, for spelling and grammar. If I'm in a pitch, but that's it. I think that the tricks to it are, um, I, I have like an 80-20 approach to how I do things where I never want anything to seem formulaic, but I have a style and approach to how I create content that allows me to do it quickly. I mean, I think, I don't mean this in some type of silly humble brag way. I think I am like a kind of just quick writer. And I think the type of content I make, I just like making it and I'm passionate about it. So I think that helps too. But it's all about like scheduling. So like one example, Tom, is I always tell people I do a huge amount of my content on scheduled posts. So like, let's say I'm sitting down and I want to do my posts on games of the week that a lot of people know I do. 
I'll sit down and I'll write 10 of those together at the same time. Cause if you're doing them in stroke, it's really easy. And I'll have a folder for everything that I'm doing. If I'm doing like my career post updates that I do two or three times a week, I write everything together for like the next three months. I do the branding. I do the templatizing. I do the colors, but what's not there is the specifics of what goes in there. So I, I find that doing that stuff in a batch way, but also leaving 20 to 30% space so I can customize it allows me to make each thing truly feel like it is really differentiated, but give myself a lot of lift. And I figured out, I think, a good mix of tools that also help. Like none of these are, again, earth shattering things. I really love using Canva. I love using Be Funky. I love, um, I love using, uh, what's the other one? I use Movavi for like video editor. And so I found a good suite of tools to do it. I do all the content myself. I don't have anyone else helping me, but I try to help, help myself. Now that, that was really my question there. If someone else was helping you, which is completely fine, but it's just, um, one of the things is that you put a lot of personal information in your content that you put out on a, on a business site on LinkedIn. How do you kind of balance the fact that, you know, you're, you're talking about your personal life versus what you think is appropriate? And I, I'm not saying at all, I've ever seen anything that's not appropriate out there. Not even close to that. I'm not even thinking that, but it's like you put a lot of things out there that maybe people would feel like, Oh, I want to be, I want to have a personality, but I don't really want to talk about all these things. Um, what, what, what do you, what, where does that come from to be able to put all that stuff out there? You know, I think of it, a part of it probably starts with the culture that I'm in. I mean, look, no culture again is homogenous, but I, my experience with most of the people in the Persian culture, Iranian culture that I come from is to start with. I think we all have a baseline of being very open, very external people. And so that's, I think that's definitely a piece of it. I think another piece of it for me is that like, I've kind of had an attitude that, you know, I'm 41. My father uh, is 80. My mother is 10 years younger than him. What I'm, what I'm getting at is I'm not getting any younger. I hope that I'll have another 40, 50 great years on this earth. I don't know how much longer my parents are going to be around. I kind of had a realization when I was like in high school or college that I was like, why do we hold on to all of these things that we think are like personal? I almost feel like personal is kind of like this word that we've attached to things that we feel like being vulnerable is like bad. Or like if we expose ourselves, like something bad is going to happen. Like if I share with someone, you know, oh, like um, something as mild as like, oh, I took my father to like go see a movie with me and it was really great. Or something more personal, like today's my mother's like 70th birthday, as, as, as you generously contributed to. We're having a special fundraiser because she's like devoted her life to service. I feel like uh, at some point, sharing yourself to others really helps them. And I feel like the amount of vulnerability that, and putting yourself out there and the scariness of doing that, the return of what it does for others is a hundredfold. I feel like particularly in times like this, where the job market has so been so bad, people are under so much stress, AI, COVID, like people being at home. I feel like it's all like been this soup that just made me say, you know what? I'm just going to be myself with everybody from now on. And to your point, I'm never going to cross the line of something that's inappropriate, but it's just the way I am. And I feel like I enjoy sharing that with other people. No, I think it's, I think it's great. I mean, it makes it your content to me so much more interesting because I know you better. I mean, preparing for this conversation, it's like just going through your last month's worth of 
posts. I already knew so much about you uh, and, and your approach to things. Have you ever read the book? Um, it's been a little while, but uh, Culture Maps. I have not read Culture Maps. Oh, oh, I'll send you a link to it. I just read it. Okay. There's a woman who's also a Peace Corps volunteer. So how can she be wrong? But what she does is she's an international culture expert. If she goes through and maps on eight different uh, scales of people, you know, because a lot of times people think, you know, oh, you know, everyone's the same. Well, they're not. I mean, you, they have different levels of, um, you know, you know, are they linear um, or is it, you know, time is expandable kind of culture or, you know, how do you give a direction? How do you give criticism? How open are you? And it's just really, really interesting when you start connecting, you know, start look, if you're looking at different groups. I'll say, uh, I, 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 I will, I will, no, I, I will look forward to looking that up, Tom. And, and, you know, as you were saying that, you, you, you made me, another thing popped into my head that I have to mention, which is like the thing I was saying about COVID, I think is really relevant here. Like with the type of things you've done in your life and you were asking me about BD earlier, right? You and I for a long time, we're in work cultures where you built these relationships. You could build a lot of these relationships in person. You would go to mixer events. You would go to conferences, industry shows. You would see people. You know, I was in a situation where many people have been in for two or three years where all the events and in-person things that I used to go to were shut down. Because of my supporting my partner Jess's career also, I've actually been working remotely for over 10 years. Because basically, we've had to do that in order for both of us to be able to have the jobs that we were looking for. And so part of it for me is, I also was like, you know what, if I don't share of myself in the content that I make, what is the maximum capacity that other people are going to have to get to know me? It's very, very low. I'm going to have a very low exposure to other people, and that which they're going to see is going to be very limited. So if I continue to rely on the traditional avenues in which I'd share this type of content or social interaction with others, I might only get like 10 cracks at doing that in an entire year versus being able to have that type of relationship with people. And like, I feel like the results speak for themselves, at least for me, because I love meeting people. Like to your point, there's now like over 30,000 people whom I feel like they know who I am. We may not have had a coffee or seen each other in person, but they'll see my little picture on the box. They'll be like, oh yeah, Amir. Like, I know this and that. And if I hadn't done that, that would have been impossible. And like, I don't feel vulnerable about that. I feel really excited about that. That's such a cool thought that you could do that with social media. Yeah. I mean, the tools that we have today, I mean, kids, kids today just don't know what they've, uh, what, what they've got sort of thing. No, no, go, go out, look at the culture map because it would really be interesting to have, uh, uh, Iran on that, on that scale because to look mm-hmm. at, at, at different things in the way that, that you would approach things. Hey, I don't want to take too much of your time here. I really appreciate you doing this. I'm going to put links to LinkedIn because that's all anyone needs is just a link to your LinkedIn and they will be able to find you. So thanks again for uh, Amir for coming and talking about what it is that you do there on LinkedIn and also giving us a little bit of insight on uh, AWS and what they're doing in the world is they're, they're they're big, big players out there. So thanks again. Thank you, Tom. This was a wonderful conversation, and it would be my delight to come back anytime if you'd like to discuss something else. And thank you for all your kind comments, both about me today and also our LinkedIn community and the games community. I care about them both very much. And and that shows shows through, which is the authenticity side of things. So thanks for listening to the Gamers Change Lives podcast. Play games, create jobs, change lives. 
You've just heard the Gamers Change Lives podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please take a moment and leave a review. And if you haven't subscribed, do so right now so that you can stay up to date with episodes as soon as they're uploaded. And so you can hit the ground running on changing your esports adventure forever. You can also visit us at GamersChangeLivesPodcast.com. Play games, create jobs, change lives. Thanks for listening.